Welcome to Long Now, a podcast exploring the many threads of long-term thinking. I'm Andrew Warner, one of the producers here at the Long Now Foundation. Let's talk about sharing. Sharing is one of those concepts that we all learn about when we're very young, in kindergarten or even earlier. After we leave the playground, though, we're told to orient our lives towards personal achievement, career development, and accumulating property, often at the expense of sharing. But what if sharing isn't a childish thing that we have to put away in order to be successful adults in society? What if, instead, we need to re-envision the power of sharing as a way to build the society we want for ourselves and future generations? What would it take for you to willingly give up something you love? something that's part of your identity or you worked hard for? These are some of the questions that are being asked by the Dutch artist and author Betta Andriance in her new novel, What's Mine? In this conversation between Betta and Osage writer and artist Chelsea T. Hicks, we explore what it would mean to take what Betta calls radical sharing seriously. To make this idea more concrete, Betta and Chelsea have brought in perspectives on sharing from activists and artists from around the world who are putting it into action in their own communities. As part of this talk, we'll be hearing from Long Now co-founder and board member Brian Eno, political scientist and philosopher Margaret Levy, and Akwi Dami, an indigenous artist, activist, academic, and member of the Himalayan Jana Jati Thangmi community. Before we share more with you about, well, sharing, a quick note. All of this is possible because of our members and donors who have graciously shared their support with us. If you're already a member, thank you. It means the world to us. If not, please consider going to longnow.org join and becoming the newest member of Long Now. It only takes a few minutes, and after that, you'll be connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. Without further ado, let's hear from Betta and Chelsea about radical sharing. Welcome, everyone. Um, thank you so much to the Long Now and the Interval for hosting us. And thank you all for being here and joining in this discussion. Tonight, we'll be talking about property and sharing. More specifically, we'll be talking about the question, what can individuals and communities do in order to change the trajectory of increasing inequality in the long term? I'll be talking with Chelsea Hicks, uh, my guest and fellow author, who will join me in a little bit, and together we'll be looking for answers and ideas. And we also have very exciting virtual guests who are already taking action on this topic in many ways, as maybe a lot of you are doing as well, and they are going to share their ideas and thoughts with us. So before we get started, I would like to tell you a little bit about what got me thinking about inequality. A few years back, I started writing my second novel called What's Mine? And it's about a man named Luis who lives in an apartment that he inherited from his mother. When someone shows up who says Luis has inherited this apartment in an unjust way. From there, the story escalates and it escalates in ways that I didn't imagine when I started writing the book. At the same time, my personal life was going through very big changes as well. When I started writing the book, I was in a white privileged middle class kind of way, poor. I was in a huge debt. By the time I was halfway through the book, I was no longer in debt, 
I was no longer poor and my life had changed massively. Everything got a lot better when I got out of crushing debt. Uh, for instance, I was able to, I have time to make my art. I was able to quit my cleaning job. I was able to buy materials for my art. I sold a lot more. I got jobs that suited my skills better. I was able to go to important meetings in London and Brussels and buy train tickets. I was even able to get a, a haircut for those meetings. So while my life improved massively, I got stuck with a novel because I was writing about this guy who had to ask himself, am I really entitled to what I have and how much can I share? And I wasn't ready to ask myself that question. I was so happy to get out of trouble that I didn't want to think about that, about sharing. And all the research I was doing for the book on inequality, on sharing, on property rights, suddenly made me very, feel really uneasy. Well, before these injustices just seemed like something that someone else should really be doing something about. And I thought, do I feel guilty about inequality? Which seemed like such a pointless feeling to me. And then I realized it was responsibility that I felt and not in the sense that I felt responsible, but in the sense that I now had room in my life to do something. I now had the ability to respond, a responsibility. I found out that a lot of people who felt like me, that they had an unease about where society was and that they had this urge to take action. And the question is, what can we do? I started uh, together with Anne Fick and Rod DeWeese, who are both based here in the Bay Area, a network for scientists, artists, people in media and businesses to work together on social topics. The outcome so far has been uh, really incredible. We've made a children's book. We've created a school program that we implemented in schools together with teachers and scientists. And we very often get together with people from all kinds of fields to talk about how can we effectively um, take action. So that's what we're doing here tonight uh, to see if we can find ways together to take action. 1% of the global population holds 38% of global wealth. And I'm aware that you've heard these percentages before, but I just want to repeat them. 0.1% of the global population holds 11% of global wealth, while the poorest half of the world holds 2% of global wealth. The people on the more pleasant side of this equation are affected because when inequality increases, social cohesion lessens and crime rises. So this is the science. I'm not a scientist. I'm a story-oriented person. I think about these things through stories. We can examine our feelings through stories and we can share our values through stories. And from our values, we make decisions. And from our decisions, we take action. My guest for tonight, my co-host is Chelsea T. Hicks. She's an Osage writer and artist. She's one of the first authors to publish her book in her ancestral language of Woshaji Ia. She has founded Words of the People and she's active in the land back movement, focusing on the concept of rematriation 
which I'm sure she'll tell us something about. And I've gotten to know Chelsea through her story collection, A Calm and Normal Heart, in which she introduces words from the Wazazi Iye language. Welcome, Chelsea. Lolly, thank you, Beta. It's so good to be here, and thank you, everybody, for being here. We're going to be talking about a really big topic. Um, we're going to be talking about it by asking three questions, and the, these questions will be building onto each other. So um, the first question is, what is your own connection to the words property and sharing? So how do you relate to those concepts? What part do they play in your life? Chelsea, what is your connection to the words property and sharing? Yeah, so when I think about property and sharing, I think about uh, home ownership first. And I live in my ancestral lands, the outer edge of Wajaje or Osage hunting grounds, which is in Dotsile, Deer Tracks, Tulsi, Tulsa, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I want to own a home, but I, but I don't. And our reservation is nearby about an hour north of Tulsa. And I think that owning a home there is a way to signal to our community today that we're invested in our people, our language, and carrying on our ways. However, in 1906, uh, that land which we had purchased collectively from the Cherokees when we were being forced out of Kansas, in 1906, that land was allotted. And that meant it was divided up into individual plots of land, which we didn't know how to live that way. And it was, it was very impactful in a negative sense for our community. And we were also given oil head rights at that time. We had negotiated to own the minerals six inches under the six feet under the ground that had um, resulted in us becoming wealthy from oil and then subsequently attracting murders and violence against our people. So today, oil is enmeshed in our identity. And so I think I have an all native people today may have like a complex relationship with ownership because we can't live uh, communally as we used to. You know, it was outlawed and, and we were warred upon for, for that concept. So it, it holds a lot of tension. I read that the, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the Allotment Act was forced on your people. So they had to, before it was communally owned the land, they shared and then they were forced to individually start owning it. Yes, that's right. It was forced. And, you know, today we still have aspects of communal culture, like our Elonchka dances, which go the whole month of June. We have these community dinners and anyone can come and be fed. But people who are traditional cooks could often throughout the year be, play, be paid in blankets and they may not have the money or the gas money to get to the communal cooking uh, in order to feed all the people. And you've written this book, and I really recommend it. It's called A Calm and Normal Heart. And in this book, Chelsea introduces words from the Vosjaji Ia language. And through these words that you learn as you read the book, you get to know concepts of your culture. Mm -hmm. Did you learn about some cultural concepts by, um, you started learning the language, right? Yeah. You didn't grow up with it. No. Did you learn uh, some cultural values as well as you 
Yes. So you may hear the term rematriation tonight, and it's another way of saying it is reconnection, which is popular for Native people today because in 1956, the Native American Relocation Act took a lot of people away from their reservations into cities. But even before that, for Osages, when we had uh, this oil money and there, the reign of terror, like Osage murders for oil money was going on, quite a many number of Osages moved to California because they were fleeing those murders and they had the resources to do it. For me, I grew up in Virginia and uh, my paternal grandmother, my eco, had gone to boarding school. Any native person today has a grandparent who went to boarding school. Like, and the, the one of the results of that is language loss. And so no Osage people today um, speak Osage language. We're revitalizing it. It's a dormant language. So those those concepts that are in the language, one of them I can note is, you know, in English, we have like this object oriented sense. A lot of things are objects or function as objects and subjects. But in Wajaje Ia, uh, it's not it's not like that. There's a lot more animacy like uh, in relationships to everything, especially uh, plants and land. So that's another tie into ownership is there's this idea of ancestral land and like that our land is kind of uh, living and it's part of our bodies. So that's a concept from the language. Is that, that also why there was a communal ownership of the land uh, instead of this individual chopping it up into pieces? I can imagine if you see the earth as a living thing, you might not be so inclined to ch chop it up into <laughs> Or am I just fantasizing? No, as I understand it, your bodies are sort of coming from an ancestral land base. When you look at your four grandparents and where they may have, their ancestors may have lived, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And, and so when you're living where there's a indigenous plants to that continent, continent and then you yourself are indigenous to that continent there's a kinship and a relationship as people in the united states we don't necessarily share these objectives or these ways we're fragmented isolated and disassociated from one another so there's no basis for an inherent ability to take care of and care for one another because we don't necessarily share a common interest that's a really good answer, and I think it will link with uh, our guests tonight who are here on the screen. First is Akitami. She's a Tangmi woman from the Kiratima First Peoples of the Himalaya. She grew up in the tea plantations of Darjeeling, and she moved. Uh, she traveled to mainland India when she was 15 without any resources or connections, and she started working as an artist. Since then, she has founded the Sister Library, which is the first feminist library of India. She's also started Darafi Artroom. Uh, Darafi is known as the biggest uh, slum area in Mumbai. And in the middle, Akia started an art room where locals get together and make art. She has also started a fellowship for girls to get a higher education. Alongside this, she somehow also has a flourishing art practice. Margaret Levy, she's a political scientist, a professor. You may have seen her before here at the Interval. And I got to know her through her thinking and writing on the concept of a community of fate. F-A-T-E, not faith, faith. <laughs> Which is based on the concept that we all have a community of people 
that we believe our faith is linked with. Brian Eno, he is uh, well known as a musician and an artist, as well as a writer and speaker. He is the co-founder of The Long Now. He founded a charity called Earth Percent. In my own words, it's a way to pay your tax to the earth. So it allows for artists to share a percentage of their income with the earth. And this money goes to groups that protect the planet or help restore the planet. And I've asked them the question that I've asked Chelsea. I'm very involved right now in a project that's actually thinking about reimagining property rights. It involves an academic perspective, which comes from me and my team, and two organizations, uh, Dark Matter and Radical Exchange, which are actually engaged in in on-the-ground work of designing new ways of property rights and property writing, as Dark Matter calls it. Our goals here are to transform the kind of mindset that we have that was built, at least in the West, in the 18th century and undermining in many ways, emphasizing private property and therefore undermining all kinds of common property and shared property. So our goal is to think about what property can do for people and property rights can do for people in terms of economic well-being, in terms of politics or political equality, and in terms of protecting the environment, the earth, and indigenous cultures, and then designing institutions that will achieve those ends and that are alternatives to the current framework that we have. I think to approach the word property, I think of it uh, from a very decolonial standpoint because of my identity as an indigenous person and how my community, the Thangmis, did not really have a concept of property as it is experienced and uh, is conceptualized in the world today. Property in the sense of owning land and owning a house and we did not have that. So we had like communally owned spaces that were not permanent. It was always shifting. And I'm talking about like thousands of years back when we lived as free people that are not colonized. There never was this concept of really owning property, really owning land. Everything was there for everyone to communally share and be a part of. And that is how I think of property as well now, like thankfully because of this practice that my ancestors had. I think it's from memory in my genes or something. I always long for spaces that are more collective, spaces where we did not have like a single authoritative figure would be the owner and a rule maker and then everyone would have to adhere to that and or generate wealth for the owner of the property. And maybe that is why I never really <laughs> had a job. I became an artist and uh, started creating spaces that could be owned by everyone, where uh, people could think of ownership and property differently. And an example of that could be Sister Library, where people who come to the library, I tell them that the library is as much theirs as it's mine because the books have been mine, but it's an open space, which is community run. 
everyone is welcome to participate and think together to lead this space in different directions. I think what's really needed now is a discussion about what should be in common ownership, what should be regarded as unownable by any individual, and what can be allowed to be private. I think artworks being relatively unimportant parts of the world, in some respects, can be privatized, can, can be private. I think water supplies, land, air, certain medical types of um, intervention shouldn't be private. I think they should be publicly owned. They should be a commons, in fact. So, of course, it's easy for somebody like me to say they should be a commons, but the question will immediately come, so who maintains the commons and who pays for the commons? This is a complicated question, and I don't know if this is the place to try to answer that. It's, it's a question I've been thinking about a lot because certain aspects of my life that are currently private, I've tried to make into a commons. This studio, for example, um, more and more I use it as a place where people meet to have conversations. So it's become a sort of, it's become common property of a lot of people. Though, of course, my name is still on the deeds and I still pay the rates. But I've tried to deal with this issue of uh, what should be privately ownable and by saying that actually I'm not sure that property of this kind should be privately owned. So I'm trying to work out a kind of compromise, which I think is a type of compromise that a lot of people will have to be thinking about in the future as the notion of unlimited private property becomes more and more difficult to sustain. So, you know, there are lots of people who own things and perhaps like me, they, they question whether they ought to own them outright. And maybe there is room for some sort of future where we make kind of co-ownership agreements with the rest of the world. Giving is, is actually a bigger pleasure than getting. And I think one of the social transformations we might see soon is the understanding of that, that to reverse that, the sort of capitalist model where pleasure comes from getting and say, no, actually pleasure comes from giving. Pleasure comes from sharing. One thing that these uh, speakers agree on is that sharing seems increasingly urgent and sharing of uh, rethinking property rights seems unnecessary. It brings up this question of responsibility mm -hmm. with the second question that we have, how can we fix past injustices around property or improve future ways of sharing? Sharing knowledge, sharing resources with people with whom there's a power imbalance or a values difference uh, clearly has, has consequences. And we know that from the history of our nation. I think that with Native people today, you know, Native people have our own stories and histories that we don't necessarily share and not necessarily willing to share knowledge or share anything with people who we would deem as, as outsiders or settlers or non-natives. And so in order to in investigate how can you share, I think you have to look at, at the value system underlying 
the sharing and like what kind of worldview and ethics and uh, faith community the the sharing is coming from. It's, so you're, what you're touching on is this idea that you can share, but before you share, if you establish, you have to establish trust. So uh, a mutual trust, I guess. Yeah, what ways can trust be established? You said if you recognize that you have shared values. Right, because in Turtle Island, like on this continent, when we're encountering, you know, uh, church whites, right? We're just seeing them as, oh, it's a people who we don't know and they're hungry. And as Brian Eno was saying, you know, sharing is the real gift. Like in, in Osage culture, you know, generosity is one of our important, most important, highest values. That when you show generosity towards someone, you're taking care of them. And that it creates a relationship that, you know, they would take care of you too. And there's the, a kinship of just being a person. And so that comes from the idea that no people are, are really bad, you know, people aren't bad or sinful, but in, in Christianity, the concept of forgiveness is very strong. And so you could be forgiven for a sin if it was for God's will, right? But in Wajajaiya, we don't have a word for I'm sorry. And so if you, there's, there's more of an emphasis on having good ways and doing things that are respectful. And so I think we have to like acknowledge some of the um, complications within like our different worldviews. And I think that it's fine to, you know, to have any religion that you want, but it's really important to respect the radical dignity of every person, even if they don't believe the same as you. I think another way that um, we establish trust, it's not really trust, but that's by contracts, by saying you'll be punished if you don't do it right. uh, the way we agreed upon. So I guess that's why we do it in business. Yeah. Um, yeah. By writing it down. Right. Contracts and Con law, as you, as you address so well in your book. And yeah, I mean, I guess that's one more thing I would note is that when it comes to establishing the trust, like why Native people would just automatically help these people, these Fiji, poor, pitiful, and these humble people that we don't know is that when the black robes or the Jesuits came and they told us their story of, of Jesus, we, we had it in our oral tradition that they gave us a stack of leaves with a new moral code on it. So we were thankful for that because we had now a new uh, code, which adds an enrichment or, a, or a, a new, just more, more abundance of understanding. And we also then told them our, our stories because it was understood that when someone tells you their stories, you believe them and you respect it and it's holy and it's sacred. And there wasn't that reciprocity within Christianity and the way Christianity became tied to land owning. It was one, one story is the only one and, and one way is the only one. And so I think if we can look at like the foundational laws of our country and of some of these contracts and where the ideas come from, that can help us like recreate a sense of actually all people are all nations are equal and all people are equally dignified and it's not like some people are basically savages and that those concepts and those language are still in our laws and they're still alive and they still operate within our minds even if we aren't fully aware of it um, let's watch what the the people on the screen have said in reply to this question 
on past injustices and future ways of sharing? I have to say, I haven't thought very much about the first part of that question, past injustices. And that's partly because I suppose I see the present injustices so clearly as a continuation of those anyway. So I've been thinking about how do we change things in the present tense. And of course, one of the most important of those is huge wealth inequality, which has increased dramatically in the last 20 or 30 years. Generally, there's a chasm opening between the very rich and everybody else. So it seems to me completely sensible to have progressive taxation aimed specifically at taming that that inequality. And I also think having uh, caps on wealth is a very worthwhile idea. That's, that's, one, that's the sort of financial version of inequality. The other thing I think is important is to try to see who we actually value in society and to perhaps ask ourselves the question of why is it that the people we value most usually get paid least? So I think we have to fix past injustices. We see, particularly with land and buildings, but also other corporations as well, I shouldn't say particularly land and buildings, that there has been an inequitable, from my perspective, certainly an unequal by all perspectives, distribution of the income and even the capacity to control what those buildings provide and do or what those corporations do. So we have, if we turn to firms, let's start there, there have been arguments for a very long time about polluting firms, about what to do when a firm that is, say, coal producing, even apart from the fossil fuel question, but when it's actually polluting the air around it and who who pays to fix that up or who pays for the health costs of those who are both working in that plant as well as those who are affected by those that plant. Those are past injustices which over time the laws have evolved in part, large part, because of public pressure, often union pressure, sometimes just interest group lobbies and um, mobilized citizens to fix those clear injustices that emerge from the property rights. When we look at big buildings today, particularly those which have traditionally been offices and which a lot of workers aren't returning to, there's lots of empty commercial office space. Any big city, almost anywhere in the world right now, is suffering, and some more than others, is suffering from a serious homelessness problem or a lack of sufficient residents. Why can't we transform some of those uh, spaces into residences? Well, we can't because of the nature of the property rights and who has priority there in determining how those things should be used and what kind of income should be flowing from it. That's an injustice we need to change if we are actually going to make some distance on providing housing for all those who need it, given that we and not building so much more housing and, and creating all kinds of environmental problems with the drain on water and, and resources and land that we already have in our urban spaces. 
And then the final big injustice, of course, is the injustice that comes from the way in which the property rights system has worked. Certain actors get a disproportionate share of the revenue. It's not surprising right now that we're seeing unionization begin to arise again, at least in the United States, where it had clearly declined. So those are some of the kinds of injustices that flow from property rights and that can can be corrected by action and by changes in laws. It's important to understand how different societies also experience property and how it is linked with power and uh, relationship and social hierarchy. Although it may not be true for all the societies, but like for some societies like the caste society in India and in other South Asian countries, there is relationship between property ownership and caste status as well, which I think has to be dismantled. In, you know, as a child, I never thought I was a servant, even if I grew up in a house where everyone was in the plantation slavery. I never thought I was destined to be a slave because I did not understand that. And my parents never told me that that is what I was destined to be. It was only when I left the house I was told continuously that there's no point. Even in my school, I was told there is no point studying because some people are just meant to serve others. There is that very racist notion or like of people who have been historically disenfranchised to be just, again, like just people who are supposed to be poor and people who do not have that space at all. And for that, like when we talk about property and when we talk about sharing, I think these forms of injustices are the ones that are still practiced and practiced by people who are just like everyday people, you know, people who teach in universities to people who are like working as rickshaw drivers. It's like across class who still hold these views. And it's because these are like these are notions that are pre-modern forms of governance it's like pre-democratic system it is pre-capitalism even it goes beyond it goes beyond thousands of years and so we'll have to start with radical change there and for people to understand that everybody is capable of of experiencing ownership and property. And I think after we come to a space where there is that understanding, we can start thinking of how property can be experienced differently and not just through this very model of inheritance and uh, like this very patriarchal lineage system. It's interesting to me that, well, uh, Brian and Margaret are really practical. Mm -hmm. We need to get on with this and do these things. And they're Mm -hmm. very sensible areas where our attention should be. And then there, you and Aki emphasize, mm-hmm. before we do this, we need to establish trust, see each other, acknowledge each other, value each other, and restore some yeah. um, problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that the, the first two had a an emphasis on systemic and policy changes, which can do so much, but... In order to affect such a humongous change as to create big more sharing and, and radical equity, I think it can't be accomplished in one generation. I think it would take seven generations. That's usually the amount of time that Native people plan a, a cycle for. And so I think that it begins with 
the individual and everybody that I really believe in making reparations and reparative work. You can simply look at your ancestry. Everybody has like a lot of different ancestors and some of your ancestors, even from your four grandparents, you had the grandparents that you liked and were great and some of them, you know, needed some support <laughs> to act better in their life. And you can simply make reparations by noting the communities that they may have disenfranchised and working to support those communities. I also think that you shouldn't only be focusing on yourself as this like power holder and writer of past wrongs. You also need to look at your disinheritance of what colonization and Christian spread of empire may have removed from you anciently. I think it's um, something simple that you can do is look up a continent that you know you have a deep protective spiritual tie to hundreds and thousands of years ago and look up a plant that grows indigenously on that continent. Instead of burning sage um, in your apartment, burn that plant and pray with it and think about your reparative work with it and do your 10 minute calm meditation with that plant instead of the you know, the commercialized smudging white shamanism thing. You know, I'm not saying you need to go re-indigenize yourself to a continent and leave the United States. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that you can have more resources by getting rid of some of that guilt, by doing reparative work, looking at the issues, taking action, praying with the plants, because that's a resource that you deserve to have inherited, that you have been cut off from. And it's a horrible thing. And you need to be re-strengthened. But you said that really well. I've, you said before I had the question of what can individuals and communities do. You had spent some time thinking about it and it was hard to answer. And here you go, like, this is what you can do. <laughs> um, let's look at what um, Brian, Margaret, and Aki said about it. The answers in the question, like individuals and communities can do, like, you know, you have to start doing and doing without expectation. I think it is something that I have also learned through practice. I was always taught to expect a certain return after you do the work, but that's not how things work. You just do, you just give, you just share without expecting there's going to be this return. So like when we are doing the scholarship for the girls, like the Walking with Savitri My Fellowship or like supporting the women in Dharavi during the COVID crisis or uh, just putting together resources when there are floods and or even doing the library. I think this idea that this is going to be the input and this is going to be the output of it is also sort of very capitalist uh, exchange and we i try to step out of that and just do and it's also this is the reason why we are not funded by a huge corporation or any grant because this is what the grants ask as well like you know you put this and then there has to be a result and then there has to be a multiplication of that result and you have to scale up that's not how i function at all you just do and then it may turn into something that is positive and it may turn into something that is great but it may not also but that should not stop us from doing and i think everybody is capable of doing like everybody is capable of giving back 
here I'm going to come right back to politics. I really think political solutions are needed. And that involves ensuring political equality, one. So getting, making sure that everybody who wants to vote can vote, that they're as informed as they can possibly be, that they have the political capacity to exercise voice in appropriate ways. But it's incredibly important to build democracies that one not only listen to those various voices and take them on and help to resolve conflicts in the ways that we've been talking about, but also by creating that kind of democracy and reduce and creating political equality within democracy, we reduce the power of the super powerful and increase the power of the less powerful and of the ma- of the majority, really, of the multiple voices that need to be heard. And that, I think, is crucial for achieving economic equality, because what's standing in our way here? What's standing in our way is a series of government rules that, in we're back to property rights here, that enable certain people to disproportionately benefit from the kinds of property rights structure that we have. And if we're going to change the rules of the game, if we're going to change the legislation, that requires immense political pressure. And it has to be a relatively even playing field, and it is not right now. So what do I think people should do? They need to vote, but they need to mobilize others to vote. They need to fight. They need to fight for the issues they care about in a way that is civil and takes into account the interest of others. And they have to be able to exert political pressure in a collective way on their legislators so that some change can actually be brought about. The first uh, realization we have to have is that there are no externalities. If you are producing things and using resources and and dumping uh, the wastes from those, you have to take responsibility for for every effect of of what you're doing in as far as those things can be measured and discerned. That actually straight away is a huge inequality reduce. The second thing I'd say is, as Margaret Levy said, unionization. That is so important, I think. It really makes a difference if workers have a voice and their voice is recognized and respected. Third thing I'd talk about is reform of politics itself. We're stuck with political models that really date from the 19th century, and yet there are new ones emerging which are much, much more interesting and exciting and liberating, and those are things like citizens' assemblies, particularly the kinds of citizens' assemblies that have participants chosen by lottery. Um, or sortition as it's known. The last thing I would say we could do, and this might seem like a quite weirdly uh, authoritarian stance to take, is that I think social media have to be reformed quite radically. At the moment, we're living with social media whose algorithms are specifically designed to create polarization, discontent, argument, and distraction. And we 
more than ever, we need citizens to be engaged at the level of policy decisions. This is why that first suggestion of um, citizens' assemblies is important. But we need them to be informed. There's no point having citizens engaged in things if they're completely befuddled by the kind of rubbish that Fox News is putting out. So we really need to start thinking knowledge, understanding of the situation that we're in at, at present is at an absolute premium. So those were a lot of um, potential areas where we could take action. Was there one thing that was mentioned that is significant to you, stands out where you think? Decolonizing um, how we interact with our environment just through protecting land. To give an example, in Tulsa right now, they're looking at building a third dam near the south part of Tulsa. And part of the reason that Uh, people can't kind of take action against the dam is because there's a narrative, like a teaching and an understanding of, of a river and this idea of what a river should look like. It should have a European aesthetic because it's still in some ways a colony here in the U.S. And so the, the Arkansas River is actually a braided prairie stream. It's not supposed to look like a high water river. It's supposed to look like sandbanks with streams of water weaving through. And so when people look at the river and they say, oh, how ugly, wouldn't it be nice if it looked beautiful like a river? So why not build another dam? Because it fits into like my aesthetic that I'm bringing as like a colonial inheritance. And so if you can just, that's an example, like just by protecting, if you can stand up for the dam, you build this sense of community, you can protect the land and just the, the pushback against that kind of 1% thing that you achieve through that results in people feeling more like there's a sense of community. I should show up to vote because people are working to protect each other. So I don't know if I outlined that really well, but I think that When you go into one area of this, you go into all the areas of it, and it has this ripple effect between land, people, wealth, property. And it, and it also ties in with what both Margaret and Brian pointed out, uh, the importance of being informed and getting your information. Yeah. If you think that river, right. you want the river to look nicer, yeah. you know, but if you're informed, you can make a better judgment. And so these are all huge things that have been suggested. Um, we've been asking what kind of things can we do? What kind of projects can we embark on? Um, some things are uh, individual. So can we make a personal commitment? Start, can we start looking at our ancestors, where we came from, what that means? Can we make a commitment to take responsibility or try to make a commitment if we have room in our lives to be responsible for all the externalities that are uh, that are caused by our existence. Uh, could it be communal? Should it be local or global? Should it be an art project, a storytelling project? Or should it be political, like Margaret is saying? Who should the target audience be of a project like this? Uh, could it be children or politicians? There's a lot of uh, questions. And I think what is sure is that we need to do things Um, and we need to get out of paralysis if we're in paralysis. And what will motivate us to do things? Mm. Uh, I think it's our feelings. Mm. I think the things we talked about today, um, 
how we feel about each other, who we trust, uh, the feelings that we have about sharing that might be changing, the feelings about who do we value in society. Um, a big motivator for people is how can I be happier? You said you became happier when you connected mm -hmm. to your ancestral lands mm -hmm. and your values. So this is where you come in. That's a really hard part. Um, we would really like your personal take on this. You all have this piece of paper with a question, what can individuals and communities do in order to change the trajectory of increasing inequality in the long term? Now we will have some time for you to write down whatever you want to write down and to ask uh, questions. Graded cultural, historic, architectural, and community set of biases that we have inherited that have led us to the position where we have given over so much control of our planet to so few people. What fundamental change needs to happen in our thinking that has allowed us to give it all away so that we can find a way to take it back? You talked about values, talked about feelings. What is that thing that has allowed us as a civilization, as a people, as a society to give 99.9%. I think it's the concept. Yeah. Thank you for the, for the insightful question. I think it's the concept that land is an object and that our bodies are not land. Our bodies are land. We walk on the land. We are animals with the other animals. We're part of, we are the land and the land is a person. The land is animate. My take on this is it's tied to what I found out uh, as I got out of debt. Uh, if you're in debt, there's nothing you can do. Like you're in just constantly stressed. Um, you can't expect much from people who are in that situation. Once you get more room to think and to feel and you're able to do things, you realize how much of your um, humanity is actually stolen by the systems that we're living in. So. If I walk past that person who is passed out, I don't want to, uh, but I cannot get involved. I've done it in my life and it doesn't turn out well because I don't have the skills to fix problems that huge, but that is taking something from me. Uh, it's a, it, allows, it, it doesn't allow me to be the person who I want to be. And I think when we start recognizing that the fact that we have no choice to buy, but buying tomatoes that were harvested by people who are underpaid that we have no choice to join a bank, uh, but to join a bank who is involved in land grabbing in Africa. That is changing who we are. It's changing our personality. We have to mute parts of ourselves. If you want to expand the concept beyond like that, that's what I think the change that needs to happen is. But as to how you get toward that and how you integrate that understanding into every aspect of life, the like curriculum set for it is rematriation and everyone can participate in rematriation it's indigenous and black women led i believe some people think it's just indigenous women led but i think that black and indigenous people need to work together to help lead reparative work in the united states but i think that yeah like you're just first of all it's kind of a simple process but it it goes beyond self-care because self-care 
you can still get in trouble and get attacked for appropriation. And someone's going to tell you, go get your own culture. And so that's where rematriation came in, was it's a form of self-care that is anti-appropriative and anti-racist foundationally and by nature. So rematriation means reparative work for your ancestors, as well as learning what you've been disinherited of, reconnecting to the things that you've lost. You can do that through land. And I focus on land like to give you like a, a broader brief overview of people who speak about these ideas and examples. You have um, N. Scott Mamaday, Robin Wall Kimmerer, and Natalie Diaz. And they each have a different kind of recommendation for you of how you do this. Robin Wall Kimmerer, will, her rhetoric is, as I understand it, it's kind of, you can indigenize yourself to the land where you live now by learning the beliefs of tribes by whom you live and uh, kind of allying with them if you can't ever get them to even speak to you. I added that last part. <laughs> I noticed. <laughs> and then N. Scott Mamaday is saying kind of like, okay, I want to acknowledge that cowboys and ranchers have also lived on the land and they know the land and everyone has achieved some type of belonging in the United States through their tenure here. And so go beyond your tenure and begin to uh, keep the earth. And he, he talks about that through a story of like the grasshopper and that's in the book Earth Keeper. So it's kind of, I think I would translate it as to like, basically, if you spend time with land, this is an idea that Dr. Phil Cash Cash, uh, who's Nimi Poo, uh, will say, and the land will, will speak to you. It will, you'll, get, you'll get ideas through meditatively sitting with land and put it that way in like the sort of English thought, world thought, worldview. And then Natalie Diaz will have none of either of those things. And she says, no, you need to go back to your ancestral waters and immerse your body in them because there are certain things you can't understand when you are disconnected from land. You come from land. You come from people. And we, when we, come, we become so disconnected from that, we can't understand how to really be healthy. And, you know, I think Christianity and other, it becomes like a coping mechanism that's, you know, maybe better than like alcoholism. But I don't know that it's able to reverse the path. It doesn't have necessarily in and of itself solely the tools to reverse where we are in terms of our, our species taking care of each other and being able to continue surviving. Give it up for Bethany and Chelsea. Thank you for joining us today. In the weeks since we recorded this talk, I've been thinking about how I can share more, especially on Brian's idea of turning private spaces into community spaces. I've been thinking about my own backyard and how to make it more accessible to my community as a resource and place to gather. Anyway, if this episode affected you like it did us, please tell your friends about it, or perhaps even share it with them. We rely almost exclusively on word of mouth to grow our audiences. And so anytime you rate or share the podcast or tell a friend about an episode you've been thinking about, it helps us nurture this long-term thinking community. If you'd like to watch the full video of this conversation between Betta and Chelsea, learn more about our projects, take a deeper dive into our ideas, or become a Long Now member, 
go to longnow.org. As always, we'd like to thank our speakers, our listeners, our sponsors, and our members. This work wouldn't be possible without you. Today's music comes from Jason Wool. Big thanks to our production team, Danielle Engelman, Justin Oliphant, Jacob Cooperman, Shannon Breen, Casey Kripe, and the entire Long Now staff who make each of these conversations possible. We look forward to having you join us next time. Thank you.